All right, good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Is this good on the volume? All right, well, we're back after a pretty uh, medium-sized break to this, our study, our brief study of the ecumenical councils of the early church. And um, we're planning out the next few weeks uh, Pastor Booth had asked me if I could teach three classes, and I had planned to do five of the seven ecumenical councils, so I actually only had two left that I was planning to teach. So um, last time, of course, we covered the Council of Ephesus, and I was thinking with an extra class, I might be able to fit in the Council of Elrond, but when I was studying this week, it looked like there's enough in the lead-up to Chalcedon that uh, we'll, we'll talk about what led up to Chalcedon this week, Lord willing, hopefully next week, the actual Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon. And then the last week, I want to look at the last of the ecumenical councils, which we would say the bad guys won that one. In fact, the last three Protestants would mostly reject, but that one is, I think, particularly interesting. Uh, so we'll consider that, Lord willing, in the last class. So, um, some of the questions that hopefully we could address today, and I'm going to do some reviews since it's been a little while, and also uh, make some comments or some points that I didn't uh, get to make before, but uh, what happened to the Arians? Where did they go after the fallout and repercussions from the Council of Nicaea? Um, The Council of Ephesus that we covered last time was in 431, Chalcedon is only 20 years later. Why was there, why did they need another ecumenical council only 20 years after Ephesus? I mean, Cyril of Alexandria was barely cold in the grave before they had to call uh, another ecumenical council. So we'll look at that. And then, does anyone remember the, the, the last question that was asked in the Sunday school class when we taught on Ephesus? Well, Martha Bacon asked. She doesn't remember that. Well, so remember, I had said when I first studied the Council of Ephesus, I concluded it's a miracle that the church survived itself. And then my professor, Dr. Krabadam, when he was visiting and was reading the McGuckin book on the Council of Ephesus, when I said that to him, it's a miracle the church survived itself, his response was it didn't. And Martha's question was, why did he say that? So I thought about that a lot um, in the weeks that followed. What, What do we mean by that? Because the problem is we saw that the church at the time was doing things that to us are completely illegitimate. There was this, you know, this... This shrine, this healing shrine set up by Cyril with these relics of dead saints that was in competition with the nearby pagan shrine of Isis. Um, you know, like actual physical violence was not uncommon. For, for instance, I don't remember if, if I brought this up, but during one of Athanasius's exiles, remember Athanasius was exiled from Alexandria four times. During one of his exiles, the emperor sent a new bishop to Alexandria, and the mob just killed him. I mean, as soon as he got there, 
They were not, they were not interested in having the emperor put an, a bishop they had not chosen into their church, but they took, you know, they took the law into their own hands. So, um, on the other hand, though, even with someone like Cyril, we see him and the, the theologians at the time making some very significant and important contributions to Christology and the history of the doctrines of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. So I think uh, the conclusion has to be something like that, first of all, there is no golden age of the church. Right? If, if, if you doubt that, just read, look at the church in Corinthians, look at the church in Galatia, look at five of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation, of which three are borderline and two are completely, pretty much completely condemned. So even in the apostolic times, there's no golden age of the church. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is leading God's people and preserving his church, the true faith and true believers through the ages. So I think those are some of the things we have to keep in mind uh, when we're looking at these time periods. But sort of the two, you know, the two things that I'm hoping we can gain from a study like this is one, to see the development of the doctrine and the things that we profess now, where did they come from? We say that Jesus Christ is two natures and one person. Why not one nature and two persons, or two half-natures, or two persons and two natures? Why do we say two natures and one person? So we're seeing how that developed in history. But also, I think it is useful for us to see how did other Christians live, and how did the church act in history at different periods of time? So even though you know we probably can't relate to setting up a healing shrine, or in a few minutes I may talk about some of the asceticism that was very common in the church in those days. We can't understand that. It makes no sense to us in our reading of scripture. On the other hand, if you told the people at that time that 21st century American Christians, by and large, American evangelicals, I think this is true, just don't fast. Like That's not a normal part of Christian life in the United States, I think they would find that completely unrelatable. They, they would have no ability to comprehend how Christians could not be regularly fasting. So there are you know, differences of perspective, and I think it's useful to look at those and consider those. So um, we've looked at the, the first three councils. Actually, can anyone, does anyone want to try, can anyone remember the seven, what the seven ecumenical councils are? You don't have to have the dates. Well, okay, how about the first one? No, the, the seven, what, what are called the ecumenical councils. Yeah, that was, that was the, the Council of Jerusalem of the Apostles is kind of the model council for the whole church afterwards, including ours, but the, what are known as the ecumenical councils that produce these creeds. Um, well, the first one is Nicaea, the first council of Nicaea, that was where the church dealt with the heresy of Arius, who was saying that 
Jesus Christ is just another creature, and he shows us how we can ascend to God. And the church says, no, Jesus Christ is God who came down from heaven to save us. So that was the first council of Nicaea. The first council of Constantinople, about 50 years later, was sort of solidifying and clarifying the teachings of the Council of Nicaea. That's where we get the Nicene Creed, if you'll remember. Actually, the Ni- what, what we recite as the Nicene Creed is really the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed published by the Council of Constantinople 50 years later. But they were saying, this is, this is the teaching of Nicaea. This is what the fathers at Nicaea meant when they addressed Arius. And then Ephesus, the last one we talked about in 431, that was over Nestorius, who was bishop in Constantinople, which is the capital of the Roman Empire. And he seemed to be teaching that there were two persons, that basically the person of God, the Word, was somehow joined to this man, Jesus. And so he would talk, he would talk about, you know... Um, it seemed like he would be talking about the consciousness of the man versus the consciousness of God the Word, but he, he would not say, he would not use the word theotokos. So he would not uh, affirm that God was born of a woman, Mary. So he was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Uh, one thing I did, I did confirm in subsequent study after that, I had read this once, but because I only had one, I only read it once, I, I wasn't sure, that Theotokos is sometimes translated mother of God, but it, the, 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 the actual translation is God-bearer. Um, Mater Dei is mother of God. And Theotokos, that the fathers were defending at the Council of Ephesus, means the God-bearer. And that's in reference to uh, the Gospel of Luke, where uh, Luke refers to Mary as the mother of our Lord. So I did want to mention that. I, I'm more comfortable with God-bearer. Personally, I th- and theologically, I think more, more comfortable with God-bearer than mother of God. And that, that is what they were defending, um, So, okay, one other thing I wanted to talk about, because I think it's interesting for us, and I haven't done, I mean, it would be good, it'd probably be good to do an entire class on this, but what was going on with the asceticism at that time in the early church? Because it was a major part of the religious life. The, the monasteries and the monks who were living out in the desert in many places or in isolation and seclusion, uh, that was a very significant force in the church. And part of it is it was a reaction against the luxury of the imperial church. So Constantine had converted to Christianity shortly before the Council of Nicaea, and after that, with you know, basically only a few years of exceptions, Christianity was the official church of Rome. So now it was not only not dangerous to be a Christian, but it was politically advantageous to be a Christian. And that's when the church also started to, you know, have imperial favors and 
grow in wealth and uh, and so you know people who had been raised on the stories of the persecuted church and the apostolic age in 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 some extent were reacting against the opulence and luxury of the imperial church as time went on so um, you might remember that uh, the, the very first canon of the very first council of Nicaea was saying that it was not okay to ordain men who had castrated themselves. And Origen of Alexandria almost certainly did that. And, and that was not an uncommon... It was, it was common enough that the church had to address that at the first council. Um, after Athanasius, at the Council of Constantinople, the three most significant theologians were two brothers and a friend of theirs. It was uh, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory Nazianzus. Basil of Caesarea was the bishop of Caesarea. He was a very prominent theologian. He died at 48 years old because of how rigorous his ascetic practices. He, he basically killed himself by his rigorous ascetic practices and missed the Council of Constantinople, actually. He died two years before the Council of Constantinople met because of how severe his practices were. Um, But one person I wanted to tell you about because I think he's very interesting and just another example that I think to, to help us somewhat relate to the mindset at the time is uh, Simon the Stylite. So has anyone ever heard of Simon the Stylite? Or sometimes Simeon the Stylite or Simeon Stylites? He was a very famous person in the, at the time of the councils of Ephesus and, and Chalcedon in the early 5th century. And he is a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church and he's a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a very prominent uh, figure at the time. And so I'm going to just tell you a little bit, bit about him because I think it's fairly interesting. He was kind of original in what he did. Um, he joined a monastery before he turned 16 years old He went to live in a monastery, and he was so severe and rigorous in his practices that the other monks determined he was unfit for communal life, and they asked him to leave. So he left the monastery, and he went and lived by himself in a small hut for two years. It was a year and a half or two years. He lived all by himself and supposedly passed the entire period of Lent without eating or drinking, and when he came out, it was judged to be a miracle. So he started to get some prominence and people would come and talk to him and ask him questions and he was not thrilled about the uh, attention he was getting in the crowds. So he found a pillar of of some broken down uh, building and he moved up on top of the pillar. It was about 10 feet high. And then people would come and talk to him and he stayed up there. And then... uh, as he was starting to become to people taking notice and, and curious about him and wanting to learn what he said, some of the local bishops were a little suspicious. They thought maybe he was just doing this to get attention or out of pride or to make a spectacle. So they, they met together and they decided they would test Simon. They decided they would send messengers to him and they would ask him to come down from his pillar. And if he agreed then they would know that he wasn't doing it out of pride and ambition, and they would let him stay. 
But if he refused, then they would force him to come down. So they sent the messengers, and the messengers said, the bishops have asked you to come down from the pillar. They don't want you to stay up there. And he said, that was fine. If that's what they wanted, he would come down. And so they let him stay. And he moved a few more times, but before long, he ended up on top of a 50 to 60 foot pillar on about a, three, uh, about a meter square platform. He lived up there. Uh, local boys from the village would bring him food every day that was hoisted up to his pillar by a rope and a bucket. Eventually he had a ladder so that people could climb up and talk to him. And he would preach from there, but mostly he would pray and have his devotional practices. And he stayed there through the heat of the summer, and he stayed there through the colds of the winter. He never came down. And he lived on top of that pillar for 38 to 40 years and was an extremely famous person. People came from all around to hear Simon Stylite preach or to ask him questions or to talk to him, including the emperor and empress who visited him. And one time when he was sick, the emperor sent his own physicians and asked him to come down so that he could be treated. And he said he wanted to stay up there and if, if it was for him to be healed, that God would heal him. And uh, he got better. And he passed away up on the pillar in a position of prayer after 40 years. Now, you might think, you might be tempted to think, like I was, that someone living up on top of a pillar in the middle of the desert maybe wouldn't be the sort of thing that would be calculated to inspire imitators. But that wasn't the case. Apparently, lots of people were very impressed and thought it was a wonderful idea to live on top of a pillar in the desert. On the other hand, you might still think, well, even if this was admired, probably one guy living up on top of a pillar in the middle of the desert would be sufficient. But apparently, that wasn't either. And soon, these things were popping up all over the desert until it was littered with people living up on top of pillars and staying there. So uh, it was kind of a phenomenon. And like I say, he is, uh, he, is, he is a saint in the Roman church and a saint in the Eastern Orthodox church. He had three biographies, contemporary biographies written of him at the time, of which none of the accounts have almost any agreement about the events that they described. But um, anyway, I just, I, I thought... Uh, Simon is an interesting guy. I believe he was a, I think he was a true believer from what I've read about what he said and what he taught. I think he had true saving faith, but it's, you know, it's just sort of an interesting approach to Christianity. Uh, I don't know if there's room for, for that today. You know, I don't know if, if Pastor Booth went and lived up on top of a pillar 60 feet in the air. Is that, would that, you know, would that bring more people into the church or something? Uh, I guess we could consider it, but. Um, anyway, that's the story of Simon the Stylite. So, and he was, he was contemporary with Chalcedon, supposedly. Like I say, there's, there's discrepancies about the actual details of his life, but supposedly he endorsed the, uh, the definition of, of Chalcedon. So, oh, the other thing, the other thing actually that's really exciting is that as I was... I wrote these notes for this class a couple of weeks ago, and as I was just reviewing them right before I left this morning, I found that page five is missing. I have six pages, and page five is completely gone. So if we get there, I'll be winging it. Um, 
and I have literally no idea what could have happened to it, but we'll see how far we get. So I want to talk in the rest of the class about the situation leading up to the Council of Chalcedon, which for most Protestants, the Council of Chalcedon, other than Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon is kind of what we would see as the key, um, the key teaching about the, uh, our, our, the, the biblical view of the person of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. Can I, can I yeah, sure, Bill. I'm sorry, I, I missed the last class and I uh, feel it's lost in my um, understanding, and I apologize for that, but um, I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure out, are these councils occurring because there's a clash between Christianity and culture, and culture is, you know, the, the Greco-Roman culture is introducing these things, and church has to decide. Now that doesn't work, or is it because the Christology wasn't fully written down, or would, would first, you know, would the apostles have said, well yeah, of course, now write it down, but why did it take 300 or 400 years to write it down? Or, or was it something that wasn't thought about in the first century, and by the fourth century, we're figuring, or fifth century, we're figuring out, we better write this down, because you understand my question? I think so. Okay. All of the councils that we have studied were inter-church dis- theological disputes. So it was not specifically addressing uh, issues in the Roman culture, although certainly Greek thought was influential in the heresies of the day, especially someone like Arius as an example. Um, now, one of the interesting things is that all of these councils happened in the east. They happened in the Byzantine Empire near Constantinople. None of them happened in the west in Rome. And that's interesting, part of what I was going to talk about, because the, the role of the empire and the emperor is very marked in the ecumenical councils. All four of these, up through Chalcedon, and probably the others too, were all summoned by the emperor. So the emperor, there was some theological dispute, and the emperor called the bishops to meet to settle the theological controversy. Now, and the emperor had his opinion. However, it's fairly clear, at least through the ones I've studied, the church was not going to be pushed around. They were not going to be told how their theology was, was uh, to be decided by the emperor. So they would push back on the emperor's representatives, and uh, they wouldn't just—they weren't just rubber stamping whatever the emperor wanted for a result. But they were all called by the emperor, and uh, I think the fact that the Byzantine in the Byzantine Empire, where Christianity was the official religion, these theological disputes could have political consequences, and that's why the emperors cared. They did not want major theological divisions, which, as we've seen, could potentially result in violence. They didn't want those persisting in the empire, so they were, you know, they they liked to have agreement among all the bishops, whereas in the West, um, it's actually a good place to start talking about the situation in Rome. Um, You know, Constantine had left, had moved the capital of the Roman Empire to um, Constantinople in the uh, 
shortly before the, council of, the first Council of Nicaea, so the early 300s. He was, I don't know if Constantine was the very last emperor of the entire Roman Empire, but he was close to it. The, the Western Empire, which was, the capital was at Rome, uh, was basically collapsing for, for several hundred years. They had horrible uh, fiscal policy, uh, debasement of the currency leading to hyperinflation. They had a huge sprawling military that was completely overexpanded, confiscatory taxation, and the government was no longer able to prevent crime or to um, operate courts, basically. So the empire was collapsing, and they were constantly being invaded by barbarians. Um, so the emperors in the West were mostly weak and ineffective, and they did not survive very long. Very few of them lived, you know, died natural deaths or mostly poisoned or assassinated. Uh, so part of the result of that was that the church enjoyed a lot more prestige as sort of an alternative institution in Rome. In fact, I've heard, and I, I haven't confirmed this, I don't know for sure that it's true, but it is plausible to me, that the practice of wearing robes and collars in some churches and some traditions, for instance, think of uh, Anglican or uh, Roman Catholic, originally came from the early church in the Roman Empire who ended up being appealed to as judges in court disputes because the Roman courts were no longer functioning. And so the church became the de facto arbiter of disputes because they knew they could trust these people, they were honest, and uh, so... The, the Pope in Rome and the Church in Rome enjoyed a sort of influence and, I would say, almost a political autonomy that was not the case in Constantinople where you did have a much stronger emperor who wanted to make sure and was kind of able to make sure that the Church stayed under his control. So one of the results was that most of these disputes and the councils ended up bubbling up in the East under the emperor's immediate supervision. Um, the pope at the time was Leo. Leo the Great was the pope in Rome, and is probably, uh, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's accurate to call him the Great. He really was a significant person. He was a very excellent theologian by the standards of the time, and he was also a very able administrator. One of the famous things that happened was in 453, which was two years after the Council of Chalcedon, Attila the Hun attacked Rome and was at the gates of Rome to, to sack the city. And the emperor, who I don't even remember, he wasn't a very capable emperor, he sent Pope Leo and two other uh, political representatives out to meet Attila the Hun and to try to save the city. And very famously, Pope Leo the Great went out left Rome and went out in the field and met Attila the Hun. And to this day, no one really knows what they talked about or what was said. Some people say Attila was converted to Christianity. Some people say he saw a vision when Leo talked to him. But whatever the case, Leo the Great somehow persuaded Attila the Hun to turn around his armies and not sack the city of Rome. So he saved Rome from invasion of the Huns in 453. Now, two years later, the Lombards 
invaded the city, and he was not able to prevent that, but he did supposedly prevent them from burning the city down. So they, they took the city, but they didn't burn it to the ground, supposedly due to Leo's um, intervention. So he was the pope in Rome at the time, and um, I don't know how far we're going to get in the, the things proceeding, but I did print out, he wrote a very, in what we're going to discuss, the dispute that arose that led to Chalcedon, um, Leo wrote a letter to the Bishop of Constantinople, which is very famous, called the Tome of Leo, where he gave his opinion on the Christological controversy that was happening in Constantinople. So it's somewhat long. It's, it's four and a half pages, single-spaced. So I printed ten copies, and if anyone wants to take one, I would, if you have a chance, I would recommend reading it before the class next week. It'll be good context because this, this was a key document at the Council of Chalcedon, Leo's letter to Flavian, and um, they actually appended this as basically one of the supporting documents to the definition of Chalcedon. So I have a, a few copies of that. I didn't put it as a handout because I, I assume not everyone would be interested in reading it, but I have, I have 10 copies up here, so if anyone wants to grab one after class, uh, that would be fine. Um, oh, so where are the where are the Arians? The last sort of maybe the last detail. Um, the Arians had all been banished. There was a time where it wasn't clear who was going to win in the end between the Arians and the Nicenes. But eventually, the Nicene Christianity and the definition or the the, the Creed of Nicaea won the day, and the Arian bishops were banished from the empire. But that didn't make them disappear. They just went to the barbarian tribes where Arianism was established there by these banished bishops. So um, there were Arians living in Europe, just not within the Roman Empire. And what would happen over the subsequent centuries as the barbarians were invading, you know, repeatedly invading different parts of the empire and conquering it, is that they would bring Arianism to those regions. And there there was actually... There would actually, in some instances, there, were, there was persecution for periods of time of Nicene Christians by the Arian conquerors. But in every case, within a few years, the conquering king would be converted to Nicene Christianity, and after that, everyone else would convert. So there were Arians living in the barbarian tribes, but by the time of about the 6th to 7th century, all of the Arians had converted to Nicene Christianity or died off. And so shortly after the time we're discussing, Arianism did cease to exist. However, some of the schisms, and I mentioned this specifically following the Council of Ephesus, the Nestorians, there are Nestorian Christians to this day, not many, maybe 100,000, but they do exist. And some of the disputes that happened uh, as a result of Chalcedon, resulted in communions that persist to the present time, right down to the present time. Like some groups that splintered off continue to exist. So the things we're studying, or we're, we're going to study in the next couple of weeks, resulted in communions that still exist to this day. Um, and maybe one more thing I'll say about the Nicene Creed, just in terms of the ecumenicity of it. Um, Actually, what I'll do, I'm going to read a paragraph uh, from this book on the creeds and confessions because I can't probably say it better than this. 
Um, this is from the book by Fairburn on the Creeds and Confessions. He says, The delegates to the Second Ecumenical Council formally ratified the Nicene Creed, and the major groups of the Christian Church that did not send delegates to that council later formally approved it as well. Today, every organized Christian group that values any creeds at all accepts the Nicene Creed, and no other creed has anything like that degree of acceptance. J.N.D. Kelly, the great English historian of the creeds, famously claims, of all existing creeds, it is the only one for which ecumenicity or universal acceptance can be plausibly claimed. It is thus one of the few threads by which the tattered fragments of the divided Rome of Christendom are held together. It is thus fair to say that the Nicene Creed is the creed of the Christian Church. Of course, this does not put the Nicene Creed on a par with Scripture, but is a statement that Christians of all stripes and in all time periods have agreed on, and thus it deserves to be taken very seriously as a faithful summary of scriptural teaching. So as you know, we recite the Nicene Creed regularly in our church. It's also accepted by the Roman Catholics. It's accepted by the Eastern Orthodox. Basically, any groups we accept as Christian would all accept the Nicene Creed. So that's one of the reasons for its importance is just how widely it's been accepted through all the ages of the church since that time. Okay, we're almost out of time. Um, any questions? Yeah, Bob. Does the Roman Catholic Church accept the definition of council? Yes. The Roman Church, well, so the reason the seven councils are ecumenical is because they all happened before the split between the East and the West in 1054. And so all seven of them were, they are official dogma of the Church of Rome as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yes. No, no. So we, um, in our church specifically, none of the creeds have constitutional authority, or they're not binding in any way. The way uh, are, you know, for instance, the Westminster standards are binding, subservient to Scripture, obviously. But they, those are our constitutional standards. The creeds don't have any formal role in our specific tradition like that, but they are generally affirmed uh, by, by Protestants. And there's, you know, there's, there's uh, problems we would have with certain aspects of them, especially in some of the canons, the canon laws that they published with the creeds. Um, but generally, Protestants are favorable to the first four councils, so Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, and less favorable toward the last three. And I'm plan hoping to talk about one of those, Lord willing, in the, in the final class. So, just for reference, what are the last three called? Uh, the Second Council of Constantinople, the Third Council of Constantinople, and the Second Council of Nicaea. And those all were about 100 years apart. It was like Chalcedon's 451, I think... The Second Council of Constantinople is four, uh, 553, and then it's like 653, and then 787, something. So they're much further spaced, the later ones. Any other questions? All right, well, I'll just set up next week by reminding you that the issue with Cyril and Nestorius that was decided at the Council of, the, the Council of Ephesus was the 
whether the person of the Savior was divided. So Cyril was insisting on one person. And that's what was condemned in Nestorius and Nestorianism at the Council of Ephesus. However, uh, Cyril was initially very resistant to the language of two natures. And they hashed this out between Cyril and John of Antioch, who at Ephesus had both excommunicated each other, but following the council, they reconciled and they corresponded a lot, and they finally agreed on what's called the formula of union, where Cyril accepted the language of two natures and one person. So that was where, that's, that's basically where we left off prior to the Council of Chalcedon. Um, so Cyril was initially resistant to that language of two natures, but in the end he accepted it. And we're going to see that some of his followers were unwilling to accept that language of two natures. Incidentally, that exact language of two natures and one person had already been used by Tertullian hundreds of years before. And Leo refers to that in his letter, but it did take much more time for that to become formally uh, you know, put down in the creeds. So I think that's a good stopping spot. If there's any other questions, you could take them. Otherwise, Ethan, would you be willing to close us in prayer? Yeah.